Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and uh, happy to welcome the listeners today as we speak with Drs. Robert Grossmark and Dr. Bruce Reese regarding their publication called Heterosexual Masculinities, Contemporary Perspectives from Psychoanalytic Gender Theory, which was published by Rutledge in uh, 2009. Before I give you the biographical information on the editors of this volume, I just wanted to make clear so you know who's who during the interview is Dr. Grossmark has a British accent and Dr. Reese does not. I believe, I don't know how to describe his accent. I believe he's American, but je ne sais quoi. <laughs> but anyways, so you can follow along and know who's who. That That's how you do it. Um, and um, Dr. Grossmark is uh, in private practice here in Manhattan seeing individuals, couples, and um, he's also a group analyst. And he, um, I think, believe, I believe he consults as well with um, organizations and institutions as a psychoanalytic organizational consultant. Um, he teaches a variety of places, including the CUNY Doctoral Program uh, in Clinical Psychology, uh, NIP, National Institute for the Psychotherapies, the Westchester Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, and he's also a teacher and a member of the Eastern Group Psychotherapy Society. Um, he supervises uh, a number of places, including the NYU postdoc, from which I believe he's also a graduate. Um, Grossmark has published widely in uh, professional journals, uh, and he has al- he's also the 2008 winner of the Anne Alonzo Award for Excellence in Group Psychotherapy, um, which is awarded by the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Um, it's a prestigious award for which um, his paper, uh, The Edge of Chaos, Enactment, Disruption, and Emergence in Group Psychotherapy, was given this award. So anyway, um, we're pleased to have him here, and joining him is his colleague, and I think friend uh, as well, um, Dr. Bruce Reese. And uh, Dr. Reese is a clinical assistant professor in the NYU postdoc program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, a visiting faculty member at several uh, other psychoanalytic institutes um, in the United States. And in addition to doing supervision and practicing full-time in Manhattan, Um, Reese serves on the editorial boards of several psychoanalytic journals, among them the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, the Psychoanalytic Quarterly, and Psychoanalytic Dialogues. Um, Some of his interests include the intersection of phenomenological philosophy with psychoanalytic clinical theory, comparative theories of intersubjectivity, masculinities, of course, and uh, infant research and its technique to, and its application to contemporary analytic technique. Additionally, he is a member of the Boston Change Process Group. Um, Before we move on to the interview, I just wanted to let listeners know that if you'll be in Manhattan around Thanksgiving, um, on the 22nd of November to be exact, uh, I will be interviewing Lou Aaron and Karen Starr, 
on their recent publication, uh, Psychotherapy for the People. And I'll be doing that at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies um, in Greenwich Village. Uh, it's a uh, from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m., I believe. You can get more information about this if you'd like to attend, www.cmps.edu. Um, I believe you probably have to reserve a seat, and it is, I believe, free of charge. So if you've ever wanted to participate in New Books and Psychoanalysis, then get on the air because we will have audience participation. Uh, here's your chance. So without further ado, I want to move on to the interview and you can hear what Reese and Grossmark have to say as we conclude what looks like the new books in psychoanalysis, Summer of Men. Hello, and I'd like to welcome um, Bruce Reese and Robert Grossmark to New Books in Psychoanalysis today. Uh, Welcome, guys. Hello. Uh, hi, 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 we're happy to be here. Yeah, um, I wanted to welcome you to the Summer of Men at New Books and Psychoanalysis, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're very happy to join. It's all, it's all the rage, um, because the previous interview, as uh, listeners know, was with Don Moss, also in his book about masculinity. Uh, uh-huh. And um, so here we have um, the second book in a row uh, on the topic, so... Perhaps to begin, I just wanted to ask you to, um, he wanted to say you guys, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why uh, what do you make of the focus? I mean, your book came out in 2009, uh, and Moss's yeah. book is uh, more recent, but it seems to be that there's a, a, a shift or an interest, um, a focus, uh, Suddenly, um, or more recently, on on masculinity within within the field of psychoanalysis. C- care to comment as a what's brought this about? What do you make of it? Well, it's a it's a, it's a long overdue uh, focus. There's been such a focus in for the last twenty years on uh, feminist and queer approaches in gender theory that's come to dominate uh, gender theory and psychoanalysis. So the time has really been right in the last several years to re-examine masculinity and and thoughts about mask, uh, analytic thoughts about masculinity and approaches to masculinity. Um, it it certainly has come up uh, from a clinical place for both Robert and I in in some of our discussions. Um, and we we talked in our introduction about the discussion we had many years ago in a cafe down in uh, Greenwich Village where the men in our practices who we were discussing just didn't fit the theory that uh, psychoanalysis had for them. And, and it became immediately evident that, that new, new thinking about masculinity was, was needed. Um, yeah, and I, I think in those discussions it also became clear to us that we didn't really fit with the old theory as well, and that we had grown up in a different generation, a generation, um, you know, the, the generation where we were affected by David Bowie and Mick Jagger and various kinds of gender bending were commonplace um, in the media and um, even in our social groups, and that it felt like the whole idea of masculinity that we were coming upon in the theory just wasn't speaking to us and as Bruce says or our patients and the kind of dilemmas and uh, intrapsychic issues that we were being presented with so it felt very organic to us 
and we kind of hit upon it without really intending to, that, boy, this is something that we really uh, could look at and and, uh, investigate in some detail. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking as I read through, um, this is a collection uh, for the listening audience, this is a collection of essays by um, a variety of uh, psychoanalytically informed um, authors and, uh, and clinicians. And as I was reading through, I, I got the sense that um, if we didn't have the uh, sort of classic Greenson, um, uh, Stoller, Chattero idea about how a boy becomes masculinized and his relationship to disidentifying, I think is how Chattero puts it, from the mother, or uh, repudiating um, the feminine as the way to become masculine, which really has been right, sort of the standard uh, argument, I think. Um, yes, and you know, I, I think that gets to something that's at the core of what we began to think and what's picked up in our volume by writers like Michael Diamond, mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, with the whole issue of the old, now we can say old, uh, separation, individuation, uh, um, the, the disidentification hypothesis has really been replaced by um, um, current theory that's relational theory, that's intersubjective theory, that looks at attachment separation and looks at the degree to which the the, uh, healthiness of the boy's identification with the mother that gets carried along throughout life alongside the identification with the father. And that really, in a sort of organic and ordinary way, seems to be speaking to our experience of ourselves and the kind of men we're we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a very different psychoanalytic idea. Right. Right. I mean, I was thinking like if we change how we understand masculinity within psychoanalysis, that really has profound implications for psychoanalysis because, you know, when you begin to read, right, your, your early Freud and you read your Oedipal, um, uh, you know, theory and you think about um, the boy is thought through and the girl is, the critique is often the girl has not been thought through. The girl is sort of like, the Oedipal, you know, theory doesn't really quite work, and everyone's, you know, commented on that for the past 25, 30 years or so. But um, this is really a re... Uh, this has deep implications, I would think, for the entirety um, of the field. Is that is that how it, it seems to you as well, if we rethink masculinity, its impact for the entirety of psychoanalysis? Uh, I, I think that's certainly true. I, you know, the, I, I agree with what you said about about uh, the girl being rethought through for the last 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've, we've taken for granted that, that we already knew what, what happened with the boy. And it turns out, um, as a, partially as a result of rethinking the girl, that we're in a position to rethink the boy. Mm-hmm. And, and doing so leads us to this plurality of masculine positions. Um, and and to a, our our book is entitled heterosexual masculinities, uh, a kind of plurality of masculinities um, where we no longer talk about the boy or the man or, or even men because there's such a diversity amongst men and amongst uh, gender positions that that we don't want to we don't want to make uh, what in the past has been uh, universalizing comments about 
what men are like. Mm-hmm. It's just much more complicated than that. Sure. It seems that... Yeah, and yeah, I, I just want to, just adding to that, the issue of, and I think that also speaks to your question as to why now the interest in masculinity is because I think that psychoanalysis is now embracing the idea of multiplicity and multiplicity within the individual. So I also think that the issue, the idea of diverse and multiple masculinities also applies within the self. So that many men, um, find themselves with very different identifications all at the same time and very different states of their and, and senses of their own self as a masculine, uh, as, as a male. It's not just one thing within the self as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of a more um, hopeful um, version of male heterosexuality. And I, I think one of the things that the book gets at is that men have been the, 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 last, the only essentialist position left standing has been yeah. has yeah. been the, the hetero, heterosexual, particularly the white heterosexual uh, man, has has really been the one who gets to hold on to something that could be called essence. And in this book, would you say you're sort of uh, the authors are often um, involved in an anti-essentialist critique when it comes to masculinity? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know that that's so right, and and uh, masculinity had to occupy that essentialist position. It had to be this one thing for a lot of the critiques to be successful, right? Because a lot of the, a lot of what was claimed as difference was claimed as difference from this monolithic thing that was one thing and called masculinity and and thought about in very, very uh, constrained ways. And and it was quite successful in, in breaking out those areas of difference. But then when you go back to look at what it is, what what that monolith is and, and see how how teeming with multiplicity it is, you, you realize, oh my God, it's time to it's time to think about that. It's time to reconceptualize that as as something more. Right. Well it really is a shift because psychoanalysis does um we depend often, certain models of analytic thinking, de- it seems to me, depends on uh, the existence of monoliths. And what you're saying, I, and I think this book is, um, I don't know if all the authors would identify as relational necessarily, but they, but there seems to be... Correct, indeed not. Yeah, but there, but there does seem to be some of a relational... Uh, it's, well, it's the relational argument is, that, uh, is regarding multiplicity, yeah. It's really quite different, let's say, um, from, you know, sort of drive theory or even, you know, sort of Kleinian thinking, which I think those schools of thoughts maybe depend more on certain monoliths um, uh, that we can depend upon as being um, not so fluid. You know, I think that, too, is changing, though. I, I think you're right that, that uh, the idea of multiplicity kind of sprang up with the relationals who were interested in postmodern theory, for instance. Right. But but uh, Diamond, I don't think, identifies as a relational theorist, and certainly the person who is a first author was not a relational theorist. So it, it, it really is quite a, a spreading idea. That it's going into more classical um, analytic corners, for, for instance, the, the last chapter by Jerry Fogel, yeah. who certainly wouldn't, I, I don't believe, would identify himself as relational, but his uh, 
introducing the idea of uh, interiority in men and and reconfiguring castration anxiety and and the whole castration issue as the robbing men, of men being robbed of their interiority and the dark spaces uh, inside of them is is a very uh, um, uh, useful reconfiguration of the whole castration issue and comes from a very, uh, uh, almost a classical reading. Mm-hmm. I actually, I have a quote, uh, his, his article, um, uh, his essay about right, interiority and intergenital space in men um, is really, I think, a groundbreaking uh, piece. Um, yes. I, I, let me read a quote, because it's funny, you know, interviewing you guys, and it's a whole book of all these different authors. I want to let the readers get a sense of what's inside this book. And so Fogel has, uh, Fogel writes um, the following, if individuation sometimes seems easier for bodies, it is often at the expense of reality, which is not so concrete, dominatable, and obvious as their penis and the culture would have them believe. As girls do, boys must eventually cope with what cannot be seen nor easily grasped or controlled within their bodies, minds, and body minds. Boys may feel certainty in the obviousness of what they can see or grasp, but therefore mistake what is visible for the whole truth. That which appears anatomically or psychically obvious, clear by comparison to what is enigmatic and invisible, may seem simple but actually be simple-minded. Thus the apparently easier road to separation individuation for a boy might actually lead to psychological constriction. Um, I thought that was a really, uh, you know, a paradigm shifter, um, his, his argument. And uh, that uh, I was... Yeah, no, that's, that's, that, that gets to the heart of... Uh, it doesn't just reconfigure some of the classic issues, of, uh, for instance, castration, but the whole separate... What's said at the end there in terms of separation individuation can really constrict that mm-hmm. ideology can constrict uh, the complexity of what boys are struggling with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was just terrific. You have some really, I mean, some terrific authors are in here. I wanted to ask you guys, maybe this works to move from Fogel, um, to ask, what did Freud get right in your minds about heterosexual, heterosexual masculinity? What, he, what, <laughs> what a big he, question! What did he it, not have it, the ability? To I, was, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about the the 1400s when the Europeans were trying to find a passage to India, <laughs> and how they how they sailed west right. and they came upon these islands and they thought, oh, India, <laughs> and and how we still call those islands today the West Indies. Right. Right. I was thinking that. Our conception of in psychoanalysis of gender is a little bit like the West Indies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're just admired in these terms and, and these developmental schemes that have very little to do with how people really grow up and what their parents are really like. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't answer your question, but <laughs> no, <laughs> what I thought no, of. But it's, it's a, it's, it, it, I think it's, it's illustrative of um, the problem that, that the book is, is attempting to, to address and redress, the problem the book is attempting to redress. Um, there's a... Well, go ahead. Right, I'm thinking of in, uh, the chapter by Michael Diamond, where he's again recasting an, an old uh, Freudian idea of, of genitality being the... Uh, uh, desired 
it, it's the success of development in some kind of a way, and that the concept has been sort of in a way degraded to such a, and that's what Fogel is also arguing against in that quote, that it, it can get uh, degraded to something very concrete in a way, and gets reduced to something about uh, a certain kind of potency and exhibitionism and thrusting in, in life, and he reframes it in terms of, and again, not coming from a particularly relational perspective, but talks about men developing intimacy and the real connectedness with others, and re- and being uh, well connected in their relationships and creativity. And that seems that's the kind of reworking of an old idea that feels very right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know if we can say, well, we need to dismiss the old idea. I mean, that's the, the power of ideas is that they help us think and grow. And uh, so that's still useful, but it feels much more right, again, in terms of the kind of men, the men we see, the men we are, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that 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 uh, chapter by by Diamond really very very uh, important and helpful as well to my thinking, and it, it's made me it's made me consider more recently uh, issues of genitality and how how a lot of psychoanalytic uh, writing and gender and about masculinity over the past twenty years has not has not considered uh, genitality so much. Really, the the discussion has been all around phallic issues, uh, as if there's no uh, progression to this next stage that can be about uh, about creation and about making something new. And and there's there are really interesting, I think, psychic shifts that go on in men's minds, and I see this in my office all of the time uh, with younger men who are on the threshold of starting families who have to navigate this transition between uh, ambitious, uh, striving, thrusting, narcissistic fellow to uh, this more genital state of uh, taking care of, of uh, caring for others. And it's a, it's a tremendous leap that, that very few people really write about. Diamond certainly does in wonderful ways. It's so interesting, Bruce, that you you just described a genital state as involving caring, taking care of others, and there it is. There's the reworking. The genitality includes this mother within, the the female within the male or the mother within uh, the man. Um, that allows for that kind of multiplicity where someone can move from, uh, to, to put it uh, too simply, but a work self-state, which might be more of a classic image of genitality and, uh, and ambition, to real caretaking and uh, the soft center, if you like, although caretaking isn't so soft, and <laughs> as we found out. But uh, um, there's the shift. Yeah, and it also it also uh, asks us to rethink whether the paternal has to be paternalistic, whether there can be caretaking as part of the paternal that that perhaps doesn't even need to be maternal. Right, right, right. And if we're not making these gross dichotomies, you know, can the paternal also be caretaking? Right, it's a really important question. I think in the book, uh, I also have the sense that I. I well, where has the pre-edible father been? You know, there's a uh-huh. there's a pre-edible mother, right? And we all, you know, just within the field, just thinking about um, 
how infrequently I encounter uh, thinking on the pre-Oedipal paternal or pre-Oedipal father. And uh, I think Diamond's, uh, if I recall, um, gives gives some primacy to to that notion that both children, boys and girls, both experience their father early in life as well. And I wonder about the ways in which fathers have been banished um, to, you know, at the age of three and walks the father. That's, that's, that's right, and I think the culture, you see our culture has moved along. Uh, I think it's in Rothschild's paper, I think it's that chapter, that he mentions the um, the changing tables in men's bathrooms. Right. I mean, that's now just an ordinary feature of our current life, that in the men's bathrooms in the mall or in the restaurant, uh, there's a changing table. It's, it's like analysis is catching up with what's already now a new norm. Um, that men are expected to be have this capacity and just have it as an ordinary part of our lives to be changing diapers and caring for our young. Mm-hmm. And, and as Bruce said, that needn't be cast as a maternal function. Right. I think that's what shifted. Right. So yeah, I like should be in my chapter where I have a couple of cases and I give that example of where the man brings his baby in yes. and who changes has to change the baby and we work together. <laughs> changing the baby in the office and uh, playing with the baby together. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot more in that chapter, but just that image, it's a very different image of man and also a very different image, I guess, of a psychoanalyst. Yeah, it, it would be interesting. If, you know, infant, if infant studies in, are so focused on the mother-infant diet, and I don't can't think of a lot of work that's done, although I'm not so well-versed in um, attachment theory and infant research, but done with father-infant um, uh, experience. Indeed. There's a Swiss uh, researcher by the name of Sivas uh, who, who uh, studies um, triads, mother, father, and infant. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how, how the infant negotiates between the, the uh, relationship between the parents mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, the, the father's there all along, and the infant is not only noticing the father, but mediating the relationship between the parents. So, it's funny now, when I think about the, you know, how, how the focus has shifted, or has been, um, on the pre period, right, within psychoanalysis, we really have embraced, you know, the pre and that, of course, is privileged in some respects, um, the role of the mother, um, and with your book, I think some of that is uh, beginning to be thrown uh, thrown into question. No, you follow what I'm saying? That that it's sort of the feminist critique, you know, has worked really well with sort of uh, you know, thinking about the preedible because it's really the mother is seen as this overarching, you know, figure, the one who's in, in control of life and death. But when you begin to say, but there, the father was there too. Um, yes, a different ball of wax, I think, altogether, in terms of where, where, where we may be headed. Uh, as yeah, I, I, I suppose it's another of those situations where we don't want to get, 
where things are shifting such that we don't need the either or, but it's the both and, you know, and that uh, uh, Bruce is uh, talking about the triadic consciousness. I mean, I always enjoyed reading the child studies out of the um, Kleinian Institute in London, um, the Kleinian baby watchers, who would, rather than looking at mother-infant interactions in isolation, would go and have uh, and spend time within a family. And some of those articles are, uh, I think, people like Shuttleworth, um, they're quite remarkable because you observe a baby with both with parents, all the siblings, grandparents coming in and out, uh, um, child carers, and so on. And it's a much more complex and, and a much more vibrant and creative kind of environment. And these, their analyses of these, their understandings, very fine, but very, uh, it's, it's much more, if you like, three, four, and five dimensional. Well, um, in the book, I think, uh, I think, Bruce, you write about this, and I think Audrey Harris also writes about this. And has the time come for the profession uh, to make room for an appreciation of the father as a positive erotic force? Um, and I think this is raised in response to the father's often seen as a negative erotic force, right? As men- the menacing force. Um, and yeah. you write about bringing the father's body, uh, and I think Harris does too, bringing the father's body back in. Do you care to say more about that? Yeah, boy, I sure do. Um, it, it's a, it's it's such a big topic. Yeah. It, you know, not, not only has the father been uh, disappeared from uh, relation from from uh, object relational theory in the mother infant dyad, but when he uh, when he arrives, he's more a function, right? He's a function of separating the mother and the infant, um, and. That function has been written about within relational theory as um, not needing necessarily to be done by a man or or someone with a male body. It, it's a third. It's a, some somebody who separates mother and child um, based on an idea that that I think is no longer even very strong about a mother infant fusion. There, I don't. Did you write this? I have a quote here. There's nothing that needs breaking up by the father. Yeah. 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 Right, it's a joining, it's an expansion rather than a breaking. And it's already it's already a triad, or as Robert was saying, uh, you know, uh, cousins and grandmothers, and there's nothing that needs breaking up. It's been it's been supported by the father all along. But what does it mean to ha- to have a father who's more than a function? What does it mean for male father to actually have a body? To have an, a body, one that might be erotized, one that might, in relation to his son and daughter, uh, kind of confer a certain libidinal energy to them mm-hmm. as a, um, that they can participate in, right? I, I remember when my daughter was very young, we would wrestle quite a lot, and it would, it, it was a, it's a very physical, very, uh, she would laugh and laugh and, it, there's a way of kind of libidinizing a body, I think, that happens, or perhaps particularly uh, with men in a kind of rough and tumble way. Uh, it, it may happen differently, mostly with women, but but what if we were allowed that to come back in and to consider that kind of uh, physical contact again? I think uh, 
it, it brings, it bring, you know, of course, women's bodies, you know, women breastfeeding and it's an erotic experience and you know, we seem comfortable sort of acknowledging that. Um, yeah. And, you know, with breastfeeding is much more common. So here in New York City, you know, we're not like, oh, God, someone's breastfeeding in the corner. It's like there's five people breastfeeding in the corner, you know, and, or in, in the middle of the room. Um, but I'm reminded of something that I don't know how this came up, but something that my analyst told me once, which was really interesting about working with two, two male patients who had babies around the same time. They both had baby girls and, um, they were very involved with taking care of the little girls and, um, and loved their experience. And then one day each man about within about two weeks of each other, um, came into analysis and they said, lying on the couch, they said the most disturbing thing happened. I was playing with my little daughter you know, maybe a three-month-old, a six-month-old, whatever, quite young. And I got an erection, and I immediately handed the baby off to her mother. I don't, you know, and I really, that I, that seems so genuine to me. I thought, of course, there is an erotics of taking care of, you know, of, of loving and wanting to devour and eat children. But if a man gets an erection, suddenly, um, under those circumstances, all bets are off. But if a woman is experiencing you know, sort of sensual and sexual sensations during breastfeeding. Yeah. I mean, it really struck me as, it stayed with me, that tale. I said, oh, that's really kind of... That's not panic, right? Yeah, a tragic splitting. And then, of course, the father, the sad moment of the father, you know, this is like Jessica Benjamin's, you know, tale, right? What is it? The father-daughter identification with difference. The moment of the father handing off the little girl for fear of what what does this all mean? You know, how, how could we make, I mean, making more room for a man to metabolize that experience and not have to turn away from his daughter. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, you're, yeah. It's so much the way that, that psychoanalysis has, has approached men's bodies and, and erotism to date. It, it, it's dangerous. It's, it's something to panic about. And it always means one thing, right? It's, it's always some something having to do with pedophilia and something forbidden and uh, okay maybe not always (laughs) right but but you know this sort of intense erotic loving tender experience that this that a man many men i imagine now as i think of it probably has this i'm going to be listening for this in my in my practice i was like you know this doesn't seem so strange to me um and yet, uh, it's it's yeah. Investor. And you can see how how men. The, I don't know about the men in question there, but many men uh, um, are going to struggle with that. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's not something that's uh, an invited conversation. Uh, certainly in society, and often not in psychoanalysis, right. because there there it can become a very regulatory environment around these very kind of issues. Right. And that, that, that gets back to our original, actually, our original discussions about the, the men we're seeing and the kind of issues that they are talking about and that they're dying to talk about, but, but, yeah. but, but feel so constrained. Um, there's tremendous judgment and sanctimony about uh, uh, the way men ought to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of tremendous amount of pressure, as I'm sure you two both know yourselves, and I, you know, can, and I sense from knowing men and certainly working uh, with many, uh, many men in my practice. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, let's see, um, in the book, there's a critique of the thinking of um, the 
feminist psychoanalyst Diana Lees, not just by you, Bruce, but also by Emmanuel Cocktail, I think, uh, has a critique of, of her thinking. And she is a quite a powerful psychoanalytic writer when she's talking about femininity, its vicissitudes, that article, Why Women May Not Want to Want, is like, you know, to my mind, as groundbreaking as this, this Fogel piece um, that you have here. But I think that you both look at her work, Yon Cartel, as a, uh, on male fears of penetration and see her as, as missing the mark, reifying uh, a monolith. And I was wondering, can you say more about, uh, if you're comfortable with this, I mean, her, her work in particular, um, as it relates to your thinking about uh, about, mas- about heterosexual masculinity? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, it, it's been... Um it's been a kind of a hallmark of a, of a feminist critique in gender studies and in psychoanalytic gender studies to to construct men in, in a very particular way. Um, and that construction is based in, in a Freudian theory. And the, the theory uh, of, of repudiation that Robert was speaking about, the dis, disidentification, um, it, it, it constructs a... a a grown adult heterosexual man as having to repudiate anything that's feminine. And so the heterosexual men become these kind of, um, become conceptualized as always being in crisis, always being uh, kind of on the lookout for what's going to feminize them and being really panicked about that. And, and one of the things that, of course, from that vantage point, is most um, threatening is the idea that they'll be penetrated, either physically or uh, that their minds will be known. So you have, you know, the kind of cultural stereotypes, the tropes of, uh, you know, the John Wayne, and you'll never find out who this guy is. And and that's a certain kind of man, and he exists. He certainly has. Um, but in my mind, the the critique um, the critique really fails in, in a number of ways. With, with one of which is to say that um, articles like the one by Diamond suggest that this disidentification hypothesis was never really about repudiating the feminine. So, so the idea of um, men needing to kind of go around all men needing to go around um, repudiating that uh, what what's threatening in that way. It just doesn't it doesn't feel right. It doesn't it certainly doesn't feel right personally. It doesn't feel right um, in my practice. Now, he's, isn't he saying, if I understand Michael Dunn correctly, that in a certain kind of and I think he uses this language. Uh, sort of a pathological family constellation or something something along those lines, that's where you find this right. repudiation. Um, right, that's that's back from the Stoller, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that's where you find the the, the pathological uh, the need to to uh, to push it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is there's a, a a point here which is that some theory, and the psychoanalytic theory has been guilty of this in certain junctures, that the theory is built around pathology, and therefore you end up with what is 
a very good description of a pathological situation, rather, and then, but it becomes then the theory of everyone, and what you would be describing by by such a man who is constantly uh, fearing uh, penetration, being known, etc. That looks like someone who's in trouble. And, right, that's a, that's a description, if you like, of pathology. It's not to, 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 for us to believe that all men are struggling with that very dilemma in, in the foreground. So, uh, so we have to re, we have to reevaluate this idea of masculinity as always being in crisis. Yes, uh, you know, it's it's a very very popular idea, and I I, I personally don't believe it. I think it's it's constantly shifting. Well, let me let me just say something sort of funny that I, I when that theory came about, I was probably in my early twenties and um, you know reading in uh, I have an old women's studies major, right? And so I continued reading before it was gender studies. I was a women's studies major, and um, the idea of masculinity in crisis um, as a young woman in my twenties in in uh, New York City, it was very um, uh, it was very consoling. <laughs> I really, if that makes any sense, it was really a consoling idea, right? Um, that it's that that you know it's 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 not stable, and that's why men are you know this or or that. But I think you guys are getting at something a little more subtle, um, you know, than um, just to sort of say it's not in crisis because on the because I mean to, to I guess multiplicities. Uh, and for, for there to be multiplicity within a man, doesn't you're saying it doesn't indicate a crisis? Is that no? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. absolutely. I, I, and I should mention that the, the um, uh, Castell article that you, you were referring to is an article. Um, of the chapter is about intimacy between men. And it's worth just touching base with that for a moment because that's one of the areas that's often overlooked is how much uh, um, men enjoy intimacy amongst men. Now, this is it's, it's uh, useful to keep that in mind and uh, um, not always uh, disfigured by fears of penetration and intimacy, um, but the, the, the male homosocial bonding is a tremendous source of creativity, companionship, all kinds of good libidinized relating in the world. It also, for us, I think, uh, I can say, really brings us back to the clinical situation and the intimacy in analyses um, between men, uh, um, which I see certainly in my uh, individual work in analyses and also in group work where, where men, uh, given the, the stage, are, are just so delighted to really connect and open and uh, open in uncharted ways with other men. Isn't it amazing? Groups are amazing in that, in that regard. I was thinking that. Actually, when I interviewed Don Moss, it came up and I spoke briefly about two men in my practice who were in a group together who had such a hunger um, for something from each other as men that... Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you also see that so beautifully in uh, Bill Cornell's oh, yeah. chapter in this book where he writes about his relationship with his uh, very old male heterosexual analyst and, and the bond that, that they forged together. It's a beautiful essay. It's an, it's, it's an amazing piece. I was like, wow, what a find. You know, it's just a... It's terrific. I uh, let me read a, a, 
quote from this, and we can talk a little bit about it. Um, so Cornell describes a, a, a serious, quite serious rupture in his analysis where his uh, analysts spoke about um, his, uh, his patient, Cornell's sexuality, to a group of other analysts, and it got back to him. And so talk about a rupture. It's pretty major. And um, Cornell writes, to turn to each other as men, he's talking about himself and his analysts, for sustenance and revitalization was unimaginable, unsanctioned. Unimaginable and unsanctioned as these desires were, while deadened, they did not die, but finally erupted back into our lives through the enactment. So this brings, I guess, up the question for me. What is the role of conflict in creating intimacy between men? Do you have any, because I think Captel is kind of talking about that, and uh, and certainly here, this it's this conflict that these two men really turn into an aggressive, deadly, uh, deadly thing. But I, you know, growing up, you know, I remember boys in high school, the ones who like really fought and like actually beat each other up, eventually like were arm in arm and like became best buddies. Uh, and yeah, and, Bruce and I beat each other up quite regularly. How many times did you break into like physical, into fisticuffs as you were working on the book? That's why I looked at it in the book together. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you can make well, it's, it's a really interesting question. It makes me think that, that maybe intimacy in, with men or between men um, also includes that, that kind of more physically aggressive uh, variety of intimacy that it's not not necessarily an impediment to it, but a kind of a, a facilitation of it. Yeah, supplements or something. It's, I've, I've often I've often envied uh, men that for sure. I certainly have friends who uh, I'm I'm very uh, you know we, we put each other down as a as a way of uh, bonding with each other. Of course. That's right, and I think it's so important to, to connect to the idea of different registers of intimacy, yeah. and, and which, 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 and, and to not confine this to uh, you know a, um, a fear of penetration. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a register of intimacy, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, and I think a lot of uh, you know, I think a lot of women will like be like, oh, why do they have to be that way? But I've always been like, well, it's kind of a register of experience that um, I don't really, you know, I, I've not really had access to. But I see, I'm like, wow, imagine to fight and to still be friends, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you really fight and then, like, you're still friends and you joke around about that fight you had. I was like, there's, there's, an as- there's a use of aggression um, that is uh, – yeah, it's, it's, I think it's enviable. I'll just, I'll just say that. Well, so, I, I, should, I should also say, in that kind of the sequence of that kind of rupture, uh, fight, and repair, it's also very much the kind of uh, uh, sequence that one sees much more and more in the idea of how treatment works. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, that, 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 that rather than viewing it as, you know, a catastrophic, uh, 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 destructive, part of a treatment, it, it ends up being one, we, we now have a whole language of enactment, yeah. uh, um, which which is another piece of why now, uh, your first question, that there's, I think, uh, a more, there's more room in psychoanalytic treatment for more registers, mm-hmm. um, although one must be careful saying more and comparing the present to the past, I don't really want to do that, but, but it feels like the theory, perhaps, uh, um, is a little more 
there's a little more room in there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it makes me also think about your earlier uh, question about men's bodies. Yes, and you know the, the use of the body in, with uh, erotic um, in erotic relating, and also the use of the body in aggressive relating. Mm-hmm. Again, not not in pathologized ways, but in ways that are um, that ways that have something to do with social bonds. Right. Uh, yeah, and so, certainly, I, I, it's something that I register is how many men in my practice do need physical contact mm-hmm. with me. There'll be the handshake, the hand on the shoulder, uh, 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 the pat on the back, you know, at the beginnings or end of sessions. Uh, uh, handshakes uh, are very common. Um, uh, um, it, it's really worth, uh, uh, well, it's worth paying attention to and being curious about. And the cover of, uh, let's talk about the cover of the book, let's see, which was really interesting to read uh, on the train. Uh, <laughs> Ours is the only book on masculinity that has a penis on the cover. It does. It's like, got this penis. I was like, well, check that penis out. You know, It's, it's a perfect Father's Day or Mitzvah gift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's something, I would, I would read it and I'd notice people, you know, you get lost in your book on the train and I was like, how are they looking? Oh, <laughs> this this book that you know you don't even have to put like a t- well I, I don't know, you could read it any any number of ways as heterosexual or homosexual but the, it, it's to have that image and to have the word heterosexual masculinities or to have the title above it seemed to me really outre or like you know like really like risky like if it was something homosexual it would be less risky. The, <laughs> That I had a very interesting comment. Yes, go it's, it's one of the uh, points, I think, that's made by so many of the authors in our book about breaking down these um, these dichotomies, heterosexual, homosexual. I mean, so many of the essays in our book, um, and, and, and the topic just in itself, this gender topic, just draws so strongly for making these dichotomies. Mm-hmm. You know, male, female, homo, hetero, and and all of these things break down when we take a truly psychoanalytic view of things, and we talk about males' identifications with women and female parts, and uh, you know, homosexual bonding, and and that that essay that we were just talking about by Bill Cornell about a kind of loving intimacy between Cornell, who identifies himself as bisexual, and and his analyst, who identifies himself as heterosexual, and Cornell says in the beginning of his essay, you know, these terms don't really work because of this relationship that I had with this man was so intimate and so loving. And, you know, the whole book kind of tries to... uh, It's it's like like making a sandcastle and then the the tide comes in again and and ruins it. But, But as much as we can keep... Um, trying to take apart these dichotomies, especially in this area of our thinking, I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um, I want to I want to ask a question that crossed my mind. It's crossed my mind in reading many different books that are on psychoanalytic books that are focused on an aspect of identity, and um, such as focus on being focused on masculinity. As, as your book does, or heterosexuality as your book does. And I was thinking about how tough it can be uh, to write about an identity category within psychoanalysis without that writing turning into 
uh, a sociological tract, which I've seen things go that way um, in you know, many, many different essays, and where I think we lose some of our dynamic thinking. And um, I was wondering, is this something that, uh, does this sound like a strange thought to you? Is this something that you contend with in putting together the collection, which I think does not, um, does not do that? Um, particularly, I was thinking of the C. Jama Adams um, piece on yeah. psychotherapy with poor African American men, which could really lapse into one of these, like you know, pieces that you're you're kind of like, where is the psyche here? And yeah. <laughs> and he he doesn't he doesn't lose it. But I was wondering, is this something that um, it's something that concerns me in psychoanalytic writing about identity? Uh, yeah, no, we we share that concern, and I, and I think one of our uh, we we really wanted a psychoanalytic book, and uh, I think that the the continual focus on clinical material right. is, is is where our interest really is clinical material and psychoanalytic theory. And, to, uh, and uh, Jama's article, it's a wonderful article, um, um, is a case in point. He has a lot of. Uh, examples from his work with, uh, with African American men in various, uh, social classes and so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He has a, a, let me read a, a small quote from him, which really I thought is, was the best of sort of the writing that, um, traverses the, traverses the sociological without leaving the social yeah. mind. Um, he says, people surrounded by walls can see the constraints that limit them, but invisible constraints may be perceptible only as a nagging sense of psychological incompleteness, I, which I guess he means self-blame or something. This may encourage people to seek out psychotherapy, but any psychotherapy that denies the invisible constraints in the name of individual responsibility is not psychotherapy at all, but a seduction into a glamorous but illusory freedom. Uh, I just, that to me just... Stood out. Wow, that's great, isn't it? Glamorous, but illusory yeah, yeah, freedom. Yeah, yeah. I just, I thought, you know, he's really, he's really, na- he's nailing something there. You know, um, that how psychoanalysis can, you know, also throw out the social. You know, so he's writing about trying to maintain that that tension. Um, it really is a tension, and in, in this book, we, we we do try to navigate that tension. Hopefully, not giving up too much on the on the internal world. Right. But, but somehow questioning also uh, what populates that internal world, and is it populated by the same sorts of objects that we used to think maybe fifty years ago? You know, and if you if you think about if you think about all the changes culturally that have occurred, and all the different identifications um, that have all the identifications that are different on the basis of some of the cultural shifts of the last, let's say, 40 years. Mm-hmm. It's really staggering to think of. Right. Uh, so, so to, again, to kind of break down the dichotomization between uh, the, the interior world and the cultural world or the social world, mm-hmm. we want to think about uh, the kind of two-way transaction that happens between, between those worlds. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the psychoanalysts are fortunate to live in a generation now where where that dichotomy between internal and external, the the, the, the internal world and the social world has really it, it's gotten a lot more complex and a lot more interesting. <laughs> and uh, um, to me, that makes the whole field much more fertile right now and and uh, uh, generative. Yeah. 
the personal is political, right? I just, I just, I just popped into my uh-huh. from, from the old days. Um, right, right. You know, um, just we're we're just about out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you guys, hey, care to comment on Louis C.K.? <laughs> Love him. So much the Deacon Theater last year. <laughs> <laughs> now, just he he really is a. Uh, his heterosexual masculinity does um, demonstrate so much of what this book um, uh, is is uh, is about, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, but well, what about Chris Rock? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you got it exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're both they're they're both like really out there in, in the way of their their interior monologue exteriorized as their comics really makes some of the points raised and, and argued um, in the book um, have that much more uh, more of a feeling of like of realness and validity. Um, uh-huh. We've got to see about getting him a copy of the book. You do. I mean, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you give the marketing department a knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll take care of that. Call Chris and Louie like, and get, get them the book and then get them to like have a conversation. Oh, I'll do that interview. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we'll have a panel. That's the next panel. There yeah, you exactly. Go. We'll, bring, we'll bring them on and the four, the, the four of you will talk and I will, I will moderate in my uh, capacities as the host of new books and psychoanalysis so um anything any final words anything that we didn't cover that you want people to know about the book i mean there's a lot more to say than we've had a chance to say but i want to thank you for having a summer of men and allowing us to participate in it yes i'd like to thank you too it's really a wonderful invitation and uh, thanks so much yeah thank you guys and if you um you know write a sequel um of course uh, we will be happy to interview you so <laughs> thanks for joining us at new books and psychoanalysis and this is uh, your host tracy morgan signing off till next time bye-bye